0: talk line network radio america's longest running jewish broadcast network the voice of the jewish community welcome to the podcast
1: and now
0: you're listening to talk line with zev brenner america's premier jewish broadcast on the air since
1: 1981 and now here's your host
2: Welcome back to the program. I'm um, Zev Brenner, my friend, our mutual friend, Garth Simons, for the past five years, six years, seven years. said, you've got to put Martin Indyk, the ambassador of Martin Indyk, on your show. And I said, yes, yes, yes. So finally, we have the privilege of having him on. He's written a book called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger, and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. But he's a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a former United States ambassador to Israel, assistant secretary of state for Near Eastern Affairs. He was a special assistant to president. president. President Clinton. He's been involved in the Middle Eastern negotiations, including having served as President Obama's special envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations from July 2013 to June 2014. And through the context of Henry Kissinger, he covers all bases. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, sir. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So what made you decide that you want to focus on the Middle East, but use Henry Kissinger as the springboard?
0: Well, Middle East
3: has been my passion, you could say my noble obsession uh since I was a teenager and uh actually uh went to Israel for the second time uh to make Aliyah back, back in nineteen seventy three and the Yom Kippur War broke out and uh I watched as Henry Kissinger in those days uh brokered a ceasefire and then started the whole peace process that, that led to the United States dominated uh, order in the region and the American-led peace process. I then, fast forward, became involved in it myself, as you said in the introduction. But at the end of that uh, last stint for Secretary Kerry and President Obama, uh, when we failed yet again at the effort to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through a nine-month negotiation that we had then, which, by the way, is the last time that there's been any final status negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. um, I decided that I needed to go back to where it all began and try to learn something from Henry Kissinger, the master diplomat, on how to and how not to make peace in the Middle East, because he, uh, after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, brokered two Egypt agreements, one agreement between Israel and Syria, that really uh, laid the foundations for everything else that came afterwards from the Israel-Egypt Peace Treaty, the Oslo Accords, the Israel-Jordan Treaty, and so on. So He he matched
2: the shuttle diplomacy. That was his big thing. But is shuttle diplomacy better than face-to-face?
3: Ah, well, as it turned out, sorry for my dog. it was more successful um, than than we had been. And, um, of course, in those days... Countries had just been to war and uh, there was no possibility of getting them to sit down together and uh, negotiate face to face. That came a lot later, Um, but Kissinger was just basically being the Shatchan, the broker, uh, the honest broker between, in the first instance, Golda Meir and Sunwar out of Egypt and then with Hafez al-Assad and Golda Meir. Subsequently, as I I, uh, write in the book. Uh, he, he also negotiated with Yitzhak Rabin when he was prime minister for the first time, and Shimon Peres was his hawkish defense minister. So it's a, it's a rich tale of um, amazing doings by Kissinger on the high roads of Middle East diplomacy.
2: Henry Kissinger, 98 years old. I learned in your book that, that I, I knew that Henry Kissinger grew up Orthodox and his parents were Orthodox. I didn't realize that they were part of the good Israel of Germany.
3: Indeed. Um, he, was his, he and his father were members of Anguda, um, which was anti-Zionist at that time. Though I don't think that really had much influence on him, on his attitude towards Israel. Um, but yeah, when he came to the United States fleeing uh, the Nazis, um, just with his father and mother and, and brother, um, he uh, was in an Orthodox community here. He married an Orthodox uh, woman, an Orthodox synagogue. Um, so he was he was the full bottle, you could say. But um, when he joined the U.S. Army and went back to Germany during the war, it's then that he, he essentially gave up on his faith, gave up on believing that there was a you know, just God and hasn't practiced since then. But he remains, he identifies as a Jew, he remains an ethnic Jew. Um, and, and one of the interesting things um, that I wrote about in the book is that before he went into government as Nixon's national security advisor, 1969, he had made six trips to Israel, uh, which in those days was a lot, you think about it, back to then, and he had never made a trip to anywhere in the Arab world, never fit, set foot in the Arab world, until after the 1973 Yom Kippur
2: War. Wow. Now, you write in your book that Henry Kissinger, well, you consulted with him. Did he like the fact that you were writing the book? Was he happy with you when the book came out?
3: Well, he was very keen for me to write the book. And that's because, you know, Kissinger is a fairly controversial um, statesman to this day uh, for... Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Chile, Bangladesh, and so on. And he's remembered for detente of the Soviet Union and, of course, the opening to China. But his Middle East diplomacy, which he spent four years as Secretary of State engaged in, has got very little attention. And maybe that's because he was successful at it, and he was really, you know, at the, in the day, he was a huge celebrity because of his shuttle diplomacy, as you may recall. It really didn't get much attention. There's never been any real study done of it. So, so that was one of the reasons why I decided to go and do it. As to what he thought about it. Well, as I say, he cooperated with it. I interviewed him at least 12 times. We had many conversations informally. He didn't like the way that I portrayed him as manipulative. I tried to explain to him that that's exactly the point. That, that's, that's the art of diplomacy. I wanted to emphasize the way in which he was so successful at getting leaders to go to places they didn't want to go and make them feel like they wanted to go there. Um, And he was, indeed, the master of that game. Um, But in the end, he he ended up quite happy about it. He says, now, it's an excellent book. (laughs) And I think that's because a lot of people told him uh, how how well he came out of it. I want to emphasize, it's not a hagiography, and I'm quite critical of him in various places. Well people but people crit- are
2: but, but critical of him during the time with Richard Nixon it was a very complicated relationship because Nixon made some I don't believe he was anti Semitic, but he made anti Semitic remarks. So let's look at first how Henry Kissinger navigated dealing with the president who, who didn't like liberal Jews and, and he blamed them for the Vietnam War.
3: And he didn't like uh, what he regarded as the uh, Jewish controlled media. I I Kind of disagree with you a little bit, I think he was basically anti-Semitic. But he saved this for uh, in just a moment. <laughs> but he, but you know, whatever, you, whatever the distinctions we make, um, he subjected Kissinger to uh, an anti-Semitic uh, jibes, and and I mean the whole essence of the way he dealt with Kissinger at the beginning is is indicative. He told Kissinger he wanted to work he wanted him to work with, with him on all of the issues around the world, all of the big issues, except the Middle East. Why? Because he told Kissinger he didn't believe he could be objective when it came to Israel. And so he excluded Kissinger from dealing with the Middle East. That of course was like a red rag to a bull for Kissinger and he, he spent three years maneuvering to get control and eventually did get control of the middle east uh, portfolio as well but it, it you know he was constantly on the defensive because nixon suspected his loyalties
2: now was henry kissinger was did he I, I, I we'll talk about it right now but the fact that didn't henry kissinger not want to save israel during the yom kippur war and it was nixon who did it
3: you know i think yes number 1 nixon's decision to to send everything as he said
2: um, because henry mckenzie and nixon was, he didn't want he didn't want that to, to, to go to well, the aid the, the, the weaponry right.
3: so i don't want to take away from nixon's decision it was critically important but kissinger's uh kissinger's got a bad rap for for what happened there and so i think first of all you need to understand that at the beginning of the war the assumption in israel and in washington was that the Israelis would clean up, would go on the counter-offensive and clean up the Arab offensives very quickly. And the Israelis didn't tell Kissinger, didn't tell the world, didn't tell anybody, didn't tell their own citizens for three days how bad the situation was. I was in Israel at the time. So I remember um, on the on the third day, the third night, we finally found out that the Egyptians had crossed the canal and the Syrians had had gotten to the Rich Line um, before they were pushed back, so uh, that was the environment that he was working in at first. Then the Israelis came in and said, Gewalt, you know, we've got we've, we've got lost so many tanks and so many aircraft. We need resupply." Uh, and and Kissinger started the resupply process, but he he did it. He tried to do it in a way that would not trigger an Arab oil embargo, which was not an unreasonable concern, was because as soon as Nixon ordered it, there was an Arab oil embargo which plunged the world into a global recession. Um, so, you know, that that's how it started. When Kissinger found out that the Israeli offensives that had then been launched were being held up because of a lack of supply, that's when he, he went... Uh, and out and and press the Pentagon to do what was necessary to get the the stuff, and he did that because he needed Israel's offensives to prevail in order to get the Arabs to accept the ceasefire that he was trying to negotiate. The use of force by Israel was critical to his diplomacy, and and so he definitely was not interested in Israel in Israel losing. The difference was that when they went to Nixon, Nixon had the authority to order the Pentagon to move everything, to get everything moving, And and as soon as that happened, Kissinger rode, rode herd on the uh, Pentagon and the bureaucracy, and Kissinger was responsible, together with Schlesinger, the defense secretary, for getting the material to Israel.
2: We're speaking with former Ambassador Martin Indy, a distinguished fellow at Council on Foreign Relations, a former, as I mentioned, ambassador to Israel. He's worked for President Obama, other presidents dealing with the Middle East. His fascinating book is called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy.
4: Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the most important Jewish institutions in the world today is TalkLine with Zeb Rana. He is so smart and he is so innovative and he has so many interesting guests. I don't know what Yiddishkeit, I don't know what New York, I don't know what the world would do without Zeb. So Zev Zeb, may you go from strength to strength and keep keep informing us and educating us and keep fighting for Jewish values.
0: You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981.
1: And now, here's your host...
2: We're speaking with former Ambassador Martin Indy, a distinguished fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations, a former, as I mentioned, ambassador to Israel. He's worked for President Obama, other presidents dealing with the Middle East. His fascinating book is called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. You know, Mr. Ambassador, I had spoken a number of months ago with Roger Stone, and I just want to play what he said about what happened between Henry Kissinger and the president. Here's Roger Stone.
1: Uh, as you know, in 1973, Yom Kippur, the Israelis, in a very rare failure of their intelligence, find uh, that the Egyptians and the Syrians have uh, launched a uh, an uh, a, a, a extraordinary attack, and their backs are against the sea. They, they are completely taken by surprise, and they are swiftly running out of Vols. Uh, lethal uh, 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 aid, and uh, I should say uh, they need both medicine and bullets, to put it uh, mildly. And, um, you know, uh, uh, they appeal to the United States. Nixon uh, hears all sides, uh, and Henry Kissinger is stoutly against uh, doing anything to help Israel in this moment of peril. He says, it will trigger the Russians, Mr. President, you can't risk it. Admiral Thomas Moore is also opposed. He says that he can get the aid, he can airdrop what Golda Meir is asking for, uh, but it would take, as uh, he says, 48 hours, and Nixon tells him to go. So uh, there is a tape that they never play. It's Nixon who calls him after 24 hours and says, so I assume the stuff is on its way to uh, Golda. He says, well, no, sir, not really. We haven't chosen the aircraft yet. Because Kissinger told Moore to stall, as they hoped to talk Nixon out of this. Nixon went out of his mind, and he said, "I don't really care about the Russians." He uh, he says to Moore, "If those planes, he said, send send anything that can fly." He says, "If those planes are not in the air in the next two hours, I'm going to come over there personally and put my foot up your ass that can be found." So uh, he was. Is that on uh, the tape? is that I mean, he did. He, he basically he he decided to uh, to uh, airlift what the Israel what the Israel needed over the objections of Kissinger, over the objections of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, over the objections of the entire National Security Council. Uh, he did the right thing at the right time. He, he saved Israel the, during the, the
2: Al-Kippur War. Is that all on tape? That whole conversation that you uh, quoted.
1: The the more conversation is one of the ones that has that it exists, but it is rarely transcribed a lot of the Nixon tapes have not been transcribed.
2: So there's Roger Stone your reaction to Roger Stone
3: Well look the, you know there's a huge amount of document, and, and this is just made up out of old cloth uh, in the book I detail what actually happened, Kissinger did not oppose it uh, and uh, more was not the key, uh, it was Schlesinger that Nixon told to get moving um, so you know I think it The documents show a very different story to what Roger Stone tells here. Kissinger did come in to Nixon and say, let's send uh, three uh, C5As, the big ones. And uh, Nixon said to his credit, said, Henry, we'll get blamed for three or for 30. So let's send everything that flies. And that was Nixon's decision. It was his contribution, something he, by the way, he was very proud of. And it, it it did make a difference. There's no doubt about it. But there's no evidence whatsoever that Kissinger opposed it. On the contrary, as I said, it didn't serve his strategy for for Israel not to be able to prosecute the war.
2: Now, a lot of Jews who are more nationalistic, right-wing, orthodox, don't really like Henry Kissinger. They call his shuttle diplomacy salami-style tactics, where he felt mm. cutting off Israel piece by piece by piece. I'm sure you heard that during the course yes. of your research and during that, the time that it happened.
3: Right. Well, look, uh, Kissinger was very unpopular um, with, as you say, the, right, the right-wing in Israel. There were huge demonstrations um, back in 1975, earlier on in these first negotiations, it was a different story um, because the Israelis really wanted to bring the soldiers home, wanted to get the POWs back. Kissinger was instrumental in, in getting the return of the POWs, so he started off very popular. But by 1975, when he was pressing Rabin to give up the strategic Sinai passes in Sinai and the, the oil fields in Sinai, Uh, there was huge opposition to him in Israel, uh, and indeed in in the American Jewish community here. Um, And and, uh, all I can say about that is, let's judge it by results. Had he not persuaded Rabin to give up the passes and the oil fields, there wouldn't be a peace treaty uh, with Egypt, in which Menachem Begin, the hero of the right wing, gave up all of Sinai. All that Kissinger pressed in to give up was one third of Sinai. So I think that that people who who you know take the view that Israel shouldn't give up any territory need to take into account that that is a recipe for continued conflict. And Kissinger's approach, which was step by step, which was only getting Israel was, was he was determined not to let Nixon impose the 1967 borders on Israel, which Nixon wanted to do. Instead, he insisted on this step-by-step process. Salami tactics, you could describe it that way. But in fact, it was designed to ask of Israel things that it could do. He judged that there was no way that Israel could handle a full-scale withdrawal of the 1967 borders like Eisenhower had insisted on in '56,
2: And Eisenhower admitted he made a mistake by pressuring Israel. Uh, later on in the 1960s, he wrote that he made a mistake to yeah. pressure Israel.
3: But I'm just saying, there was a precedent for that. Kissinger uh, developed a completely different approach, which was incremental. And the reason he developed the incremental approach, the step-by-step approach, is because he did not believe the Arabs were ready to to end the conflict with Israel. And he did not believe that Israel was strong enough to meet Arab requirements. And so instead, his whole approach was to give Israel a chance to build its strength with American support and, and end its isolation so that at the point where the Arabs were actually ready to end the conflict, Israel would be strong enough to make the territorial concessions necessary to achieve peace. I think that's a better approach to Israel's dilemmas, which has proved itself over 30 years of peace with Egypt, um, than the alternative, which would have been to hold on to the territory and have never-ending wars.
2: Our guest is Martin Indyk, Distinguished Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, former United States Ambassador to Israel. He's worked with uh, President Obama, Bill Clinton, and he's written a book called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy
1: are you interested in hosting your own radio show and podcast or perhaps a tv program Talkline network can help you get on the air from one hour weekly to 24 hours a day ideal for ethnic foreign language medical business and religious broadcasting we also have full-time radio stations for lease as well as fm hd channels for more information please call 212-769-1925 that's 212-769-1925 Or email zevbrenner at com.
0: You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981.
1: And now, here's your host. We're speaking with
2: former Ambassador Martin Indy, distinguished fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations, a former, as I mentioned, ambassador to Israel. He's worked for President Obama, other presidents dealing with the Middle East. His fascinating book is called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. You know, Mr. Ambassador, I had spoken a number of months ago with Roger Stone, and I just want to play what he said about what happened between Henry Kissinger and the president. Here's Roger oh, Stone.
1: Uh, as you know, in 1973, Yom Kippur, the Israelis, in a very rare failure of their intelligence, find uh, that the Egyptians and the Syrians have uh, launched an uh, a, 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 a extraordinary attack, and their backs are against the sea. They, they are completely taken by surprise, and they are swiftly running out of both uh, lethal uh, 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 aid, and uh, well, I should say uh, they need both medicine and bullets, to put it uh, mildly. And, uh, you know, the uh, they uh, the appeal to the United States. Nixon uh, hears all sides, uh, and Henry Kissinger is stoutly against uh, doing anything to help Israel in this moment of peril. He says, it will trigger the Russians, Mr. President, you can't risk it. Admiral Thomas Moore is also opposed. He says that he can get the aid, he can airdrop what Golda is asking for, uh, but it would take, as uh, he says, 48 hours, and Nixon tells him to go. So uh, there is a tape that they never play. It's Nixon who calls him after 24 hours and says, so I assume the stuff is on its way to uh, Golda. He says, well, no, sir, not really. We haven't chosen the aircraft yet. Because Kissinger told Moore to stall, as they hoped to talk Nixon out of this. Nixon went out of his mind, and he said, "I don't really care about the Russians." He he says to Moore, "If those planes, he said, send send anything that can fly. He says, if those planes are not in the air in the next two hours, I'm going to come over there personally and put my foot up your ass. That can be found." So uh, he was. uh, Is that on the tape? He
2: made. is that I mean, he
1: did. He he basically he, he decided to uh, to uh, airlift what the Israel what the Israel needed over the objections of Kissinger, over the objections of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, over the objections of the entire National Security Council. Uh, he did the right thing at the right time. He, he saved Israel the, during the
2: um, Kippur War. Is that all on tape? That whole conversation that you uh, quoted.
1: The the more conversation is one of the ones that has it, it exists, but it is rarely transcribed. A lot of the Nixon tapes have not been transcribed.
2: So there's Roger Stone, your reaction to Roger Stone.
3: Well, look, you know, there's a huge amount of document, um, and and this is just made up out of old cloth. Uh, In the book, I detail what actually happened. Kissinger did not oppose it. Uh, And uh, Mora was not the key. Uh, It was Schlesinger that Nixon told to get moving. Um, So, you know, I think it the documents show a very different story to what Roger Stone tells here. Kissinger did come in to Nixon and say let's send uh, three uh, C5As, the big ones. And uh, Nixon said to his credit he said, Henry we'll get blamed for three or for 30. So let's send everything that flies. And that was Nixon's decision. It was his contribution, something he, by the way, he was very proud of. And it, it it did make a difference. There's no doubt about it. But there's no evidence whatsoever that Kissinger opposed it. On the contrary, as I said, it didn't serve his strategy for for Israel not to be able to prosecute the war.
2: Now, a lot of Jews who are more nationalistic, right-wing, orthodox, don't really like Henry Kissinger. They call his shuttle diplomacy salami-style tactics, where he felt mm-hmm. cutting off Israel piece by piece by piece. I'm sure you heard that during the course yes. of your research and during yes. the time that it happened.
3: Right. Well, look, um, Kissinger was very unpopular um, with, as you say, the, right, the right-wing in Israel. There were huge demonstrations um, back in 1975, earlier on in in these first negotiations, it was a different story um, because the Israelis really wanted to bring the soldiers home, wanted to get the POWs back. Kissinger was instrumental in in getting the return of the POWs, so he started off very popular. But by 1975, when he was pressing Rabin to give up the strategic passes in Sinai and the, the oil fields in Sinai, Uh, there was huge opposition to him in Israel, uh, and indeed in in the American Jewish community here. Um, And and, uh, all I can say about that is, let's judge it by results. Had he not persuaded Rabin to give up the passes and the oil fields, there wouldn't be a peace treaty uh, with Egypt, in which Menachem Begin, the hero of the right wing, gave up all of Sinai. All that Kissinger pressed Rubin to give up was one third of Sinai. So I think that, that people who who you know take the view that Israel shouldn't give up any territory need to take into account that that is a recipe for continued conflict. And Kissinger's approach, which was step by step, which was only getting Israel was, was he was determined not to let Nixon impose the 1967 borders on Israel, which Nixon wanted to do. Instead, he insisted on this step-by-step process. Salami tactics, you could describe it that way. But in fact, it was designed to ask of Israel things that it could do. He judged that there was no way that Israel could handle a full-scale withdrawal of the 1967 borders like Eisenhower had insisted on in '56,
2: And Eisenhower admitted he made a mistake by pressuring Israel. Uh, later on in the 1960s, he wrote that he made a mistake trying to yeah. pressure Israel.
3: But I'm just saying, there was a precedent for that. Kissinger uh, developed a completely different approach, which was incremental. And the reason he developed the incremental approach, the step-by-step approach, is because he did not believe the Arabs were ready to to end the conflict with Israel. And he did not believe that Israel was strong enough to meet Arab requirements. And so instead, his whole approach was to give Israel a chance to build its strength with American support and, and end its isolation so that at the point where the Arabs were actually ready to end the conflict, Israel would be strong enough to make the territorial concessions necessary to achieve peace. I think that's a better approach to Israel's dilemmas, which has proved itself over 30 years of peace with Egypt, um, than the alternative, which would have been to hold on to the territory and have never-ending wars.
2: Our guest is Martin Indyk, distinguished fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, former United States ambassador to Israel. He's worked with uh, President Obama, Bill Clinton, and he's written a book called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy.
4: Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the most important Jewish institutions in the world today is TalkLine with Zeb Branagh. He is so smart, and he is so innovative, and he has so many interesting guests. I don't know what Yiddishkeit, I don't know what New York, I don't know what the world would do without Zev. So Zev, Yashikach, may you go from strength to strength and keep, keep informing us and educating us and keep fighting for Jewish values.
0: You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981.
1: And now, here's your host,
2: Our guest is Martin Indyk, Distinguished Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, former United States Ambassador to Israel. He's worked with uh, President Obama, Bill Clinton, and he's written a book called Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger, and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. Now, the Sinai wasn't as much attachment emotionally for Israel as, let's say, Judea and Samaria. Same thing with Gaza. Israel pulled out of Gaza Got nothing for it, really, except terrorism and Hamas. Even at the White Plantation Agreement, you're right about that, too. Israel was prepared to give major concessions, major chunks of land, and Yasser Arafat rejected it. In fact, Bill Clinton was upset at him for doing so. So the idea of land for peace, especially when it comes to the Palestinian Arabs, is a whole different situation than the Golan or Sinai because we see what's happening, and they they don't want that. It's a whole different me- mechanism. So I'm not sure if – I don't think, I don't believe that Land for Peace with the Palestinians works in the same way as did with with Egypt or even with Syria.
3: Yeah. Well, first of all, Kissinger wasn't around for that. Um, right, right. I
2: mentioned, you know, the White that You were involved, but not him, right?
3: Yeah. So the White Plantation, I think you're – if I can say, Zav, you you're confusing – the White Plantation and Camp David. White Plantation was one in which uh, a negotiation in which Netanyahu gave up 13 percent of the West Bank, uh, and and uh, then his government collapsed. After that, the Camp David was when Barack offered 90. Right,
2: I meant to say right. percent was the right,
3: uh-huh. and and Arafat said no. Uh, and indeed, Israel has made a number of offers like that. Olmert did a similar thing, and um, again, the the Palestinians did not uh, accept it. Uh, these were generous offers; they weren't everything that the Palestinians were demanding. That's the, the nature of negotiations to produce compromises. So, yes, in 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 a sense, it it. it has been a failure, which was part of the reason that I, which was the real reason why I went back to, to try to understand Kissinger's approach. But Kissinger's approach is very interesting. And now I'm going to say something which I'm sure you won't agree with, but, but it it I, I believe it to be the way to deal with the Palestinian problem. By the way, having tried the alternative, I was there at Camp David. I was there with Kerry uh, when we came up with the, with the Kerry principles, and, and Abu Mazen wouldn't even respond to those. Uh, but Kissinger's approach, the step by step incremental approach, did not assume that the Arabs were ready to make peace with Israel, to end their conflict with Israel. And Rabin, even though Rabin and Kissinger had had this knockdown, drag out fight over the Sinai, when it came to the Palestinians, when Rabin was elected as Prime Minister the second time, what did he do? He introduced Oslo, which was a step by step process. Israel was to withdraw in three phases from the West Bank and Gaza, but there was no timetable for it, and there was nothing in the in the Oslo Accords about a Palestinian state, about Jerusalem, or about refugees, simply not. Mention, nor the sixty-seven lines, so Rabin's approach was exactly Kissinger's um, design, where you put it off, you put it off until later, because the Palestinians aren't ready for it, and you try to build an incremental process involving building trust and confidence that enables both sides eventually to achieve what they want. Very different approach.
2: But how now, it going to work, Mr. Ambassador? Well, no, that,
3: just, a minute. just a minute. Rabin was assassinated.
2: And he was ready to change his mind at the time of his assassination to this whole
3: approach. No, that's no, what some of the
2: historians no, say.
3: That's not true. Rabin was assassinated. His last speech was one in which he, he, first of all, he never spoke about a Palestinian state. And it wasn't in the Oslo Accords. But he talked about a, a federation between the Palestinian entity, he said, and Jordan. That was his, his, his vision in the last speech he made. Everybody cites the fact that he gave a Knesset speech in which he said, that, you know, there won't be a Palestinian state, we won't give up Jerusalem." He never agreed to any of those things in the Oslo Accords. They're not there, if you go and look at it. What happened was Rabin was assassinated. Perez was defeated, Netanyahu took over and and dragged his feet for eighteen months, eventually gave up thirteen percent of the West Bank as part of that interim step by step process of Oslo, and then his government was brought down. Then Barack was elected, and what did Barack do? He came to Washington and he told Clinton, let's go to Camp David, let's end the conflict. Let's take you know, Arafat there, and and we'll put him to the test. I'll make a generous offer, and either he'll accept it, or we'll unmask him. Do you remember that? We'll unmask him. And and because Pinton was in his last year, Barak well, was insisting. We swept Arafat to Camp David. He did not want to go, but we swept him there. And all he was doing was looking for a way to get out, without accepting what what he understood was what Barack and Clinton would impose on him. That was never part of the Oslo design. Never. The Oslo design was a Kissingerian, step-by-step incremental process with the outcome undefined and no assumption that the Palestinians would be ready in any short time frame to end the conflict. And yet, Barack was the one who insisted on an end of conflict End of claims agreement, and we went along with him, and the whole thing blew up, so you know everybody says Oslo was a terrible thing in its original conception, the way that Rabin was handling it, it was not a terrible thing it was It was a process that might have worked, of course, we don't know, because he was assassinated but but uh, just you know it's important to understand what actually happened as opposed to what everybody says now um, occurred.
2: Well, now, today, first of all, I was curious to get your perceptions of various Israeli prime ministers, your opinions of Bibi Netanyahu and Barak and Rabin and Shimon Peres. Uh,
3: well, you know, Rabin is the one that I admire most um, because of his ability uh, to read the map. Politically, He was brilliant analyt- analytically and, and um, courageous in his um, determination to try to resolve the, uh, the the conflict with the Palestinians in in his own way and in his own time. Uh, tragically, he didn't get the opportunity to finish uh, the job. Netanyahu, you know, he and I have many hours together. I was ambassador when he was when he was Prime Minister the first time. And um, of course, I, I worked closely with him uh, subsequent to that, uh, after um, Robin's assassination uh, and his uh, victory over Paris. You know, he's a very smart man, but I I think that he was always um, challenged by this dilemma. I, I have this image of Netanyahu, as when he looks in the mirror in the morning, he's got this, this little Netanyahu, little baby on one shoulder that says, Bibi, you're the man who can do it. You're the only one who can do it. Uh, you're, you're the one who's going to make peace. And then there's this other Bibi, the politician, who says to him, don't you dare. The last time you tried that was at the white plantation, brought your government down. Don't do it. And then Bibi, the politician, run out over Bibi, the statesman. And he, he he was never prepared to take the risks involved. In, and it is a risky business. Um, to, to try to, to move forward in the peace process because of the searing experience he had when he tried it the first time. So for me, I was I was kind of disappointed in, in Netanyahu. Um, and then who, who else? Perez?
2: Perez, right.
3: Yeah. Well, Shimon, Shimon um, you know, it's, it's interesting. In the book, I detail what a hawk he was. He started out as a real hardliner. Basically, because Rabin wanted to make peace, and he was trying to uh, subvert him, compete with him. But but uh, subsequently, uh, when uh, Rabin was elected the second time, Perez became his wingman, and of course pushed him uh, on the Palestinians. Rabin's intention at first was was to do Syria, not not to do the Palestinians. And that's a whole other story. Uh, you know, Perez was was kind of guy who who. Would never be denied. If if you said no to him, he would hear a yes, and and if it really became no, he would find another way around. You know, if he couldn't go through the door, he'd go through the bathroom window. Um, he was irrepressible, um, is in his determinations to try to make peace, um, but he never had the ability to bring the people with him, and and that 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 was a key problem. Rabin could do it, Barak couldn't, and Netanyahu wasn't prepared to try.
2: Well, I, I don't think Bibi necessarily believed land for peace works. But look what happened now: in the Middle East. All the countries, the Sunni countries, Saudi Arabia. You have Morocco. You have uh, other countries that Sudan that are now really working with Israel, and the Palestinian issue is not on the front burner for them. They're willing to make peace and work with Israel. Yeah. UAE, very successful.
3: Exactly, and and by the way, it was on, it happened on Kissinger's timetable, that is to say, Kissinger said eventually, they'll come to terms with Israel because they'll exhaust themselves, and we have to make it, keep Israel strong until they exhaust themselves.
2: Well, what not exhaust yeah. themselves was Iran. They they view Iran more of an enemy than Israel,
3: so and that's that was a critical factor. I agree, but uh, when uh, Mohammed bin Zayed the um, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi announced, and he was the one who decided on normalization, when he announced the normalization, what did he say? He said, we're tired of the conflict. And that's exactly what Kissinger expected would happen on his timetable. 40 years it took them to come around. But I agree with you. It's a great thing. What the UAE is doing in particular is terrific. Um, and, And that kind of warm peace, which the Israelis have been denied so long has having a very positive impact on Egypt and Jordan, you know Egypt and Jordan kept Israel length. they had peace, they kept the peace, but they they didn't want warm peace, they wanted cold peace, and it essentially is because because things weren't moving on the Palestinian front and there you know.
2: Well, Jordan has to worry about their their Palestinian population. They're what eighty percent of their population is Palestinian, so they're in a more precarious position than even Egypt with their population.
3: Not eighty percent, but it's certainly a majority. Maybe seventy percent. I don't know. We don't know for sure. They don't keep census, but it's a majority. And yes, you're absolutely right. But but now, very interesting. And I just had a meeting with the Jordanian Foreign Minister. I was in uh, Washington. They are moving. Uh, warming up their relations with Israel, both Egypt and Jordan. Part of the reason is the cover that that the Emirates and Bahrain and Sudan, Morocco are giving them. But but part of the reason is also that they see what they're missing out on. They see the way in which the Emiratis are taking advantage of Israel's incredible high tech capabilities, and and they want a piece of it. So. For the years, we worked on trying to promote projects between Israel and Jordan. You remember the Red Dead uh, Canal project? Never went anywhere. There was supposed to be a joint airport down at Aqaba. Never went anywhere. Suddenly, there's this amazing project in which um, the Jordanians are going to uh, build a solar farm paid for by the UAE. With UAE solar, te- UAE solar technology, they're going to provide electricity to Israel. Israel is going to build a desalination plant on its coast and provide water to Jordan. And and so this is a sustainable, ecologically um, green operation that was inconceivable before the normalization uh, by the with the UAE and and the others. Uh, And so I think that's a very interesting example. And lo and behold, they're now talking about putting solar farms in the West Bank to provide electricity for the Palestinian Authority as part of this overall joint project. So slowly but surely, the Palestinians are being brought into it as well.
2: We have a few moments left. What about Qatar? I know you had some difficulty with Qatar because at one point they were making nice with the Jewish community, but Israel, they also were coddling terrorism. Are they a factor now? Do you think they will jump on board or are they too much involved with supporting Hamas and Iran?
3: Yeah, I think that that look, Qatar was one of the first to normalize with Israel back in the in the 1990s when, when the Oslo Accords were, were signed and, and they were the last to break uh, with Israel and they've always maintained a relationship with Israel and uh, and, uh, and you know under the table just like the Emiratis did and um, of course when the Israelis wanted to try to buy off Hamas um, uh, by providing uh, money to Palestinians in Gaza they went to the Qataris and the Qataris were, were doing that with Israeli um, support but on the other hand as you say they 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 were also in bed with the Muslim Brotherhood and some bad actors. Under American insistence, they've they've cleaned up their act, um, and um, there's also been a change of of leadership, change of generations, and the younger uh, the leaders now have a different attitude. Uh, they've been very helpful to the United States in Afghanistan, um, getting all those people out. They were instrumental in that. So will they sign
2: a peace treaty with Israel? Will you see that happening? Will
3: they be the next one? I don't think they're going to be the next one, but they're not going to be they're not going to be the last. Their their attitude, I've talked to them about it and suggested that it's time for them. Their attitude is, look, we have a very good relationship with Israel. We don't need to we don't need to to do this mobilization thing. I think they they're making a mistake, but uh, eventually they'll come around when everybody sees the advantages of this uh to them um they'll, they'll sign up
2: and can you try i think we have to credit president trump for that correct
3: yes well you know i can't give him full credit i do credit uh jared kushner and and uh, uh his assistant um, they did it they they really did an excellent job but it was accidental it's not as if they 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 did it on purpose um, he, you know, they were trying to make peace just like the rest of us with the Palestinians. But,
2: but it worked. You know, they found a different yeah.
3: approach. Moment to left.
2: How do you rate president Joe Biden as far as his policy vis vis Israel?
3: Oh, well, he's been great for Israel. I mean, I don't think that, that anybody can complain, especially during that Gaza conflict, the way he stood by Israel, took a, took a lot of heat from his the progressive wing of the democratic party, but he stood firm. And, uh, you know, he's he's working very closely with the Israeli government on the Iran uh, nuclear problem. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but, yeah.
2: but it seems like that he wants to push the Iran deal to go back and to take the, the genie out of the bottle. Israel's opposed to it rightfully, so I don't think it's a good thing if they're able to get it. Now, they, because there's a hardline Iranian government, they may not do it, but but the United States is still very hopeful, and I think it's a terrible thing if that indeed were to be the case.
3: Well, but look, Zev, you know, you've then got to explain why it was such a good good idea to pull out of the deal, which Trump and Netanyahu, with Netanyahu's urging, did, because the Iranians have advanced their nuclear program under the maximum pressure of Trump sanctions. They've advanced it almost to the nuclear threshold. Under the agreement, they were a year away. From having enough- oh,
2: they were cheating throughout the whole time. We have no, facilities.
3: Look, look, that's all. All of that is is vastly exaggerated to try to make a point. They were not cheating on the fundamental issue of of enrichment. They had shipped their enriched uranium out of the country. They were under safeguards and inspections. Yes, there was questions, serious questions about whether they were trying to develop their their nuclear bomb-making capabilities uh, that were being investigated. And but, they also
2: were funding, but, they were able to fund the terrorist activities around the world course, with the money that course. was released. So but the point
3: is, they are now approaching the nuclear threshold. That under
2: line, Joe Biden, under that Donald that Trump, Trump, they line. weren't. They weren't. I think they were more, they're more vocal now, they're more active now under this new administration because they're not afraid of America anymore.
3: China's well, not afraid, uh, Russia's not afraid, would, right? They were as active under Trump. They didn't stop for one minute, not for one minute, uh, despite all these sanctions, which Biden has never lifted. All those sanctions that Trump imposed are still there. Because that's part of negotiations,
2: right? That's that's what they're looking to do, is he's willing to get rid of the sanctions. But if they
3: come back into the agreement, they will have to ship out all the uranium that they've enriched. Today, they are, by the spring according to israeli assessments by the spring of this year they will be one week from enough material to make a nuclear bomb
2: we have 30- 30
3: cause we pulled out of the agreement
2: I'm not sure because I think they've done more damage and the funding was cut for terrorism and I believe they were still cheating and there's nuclear plants that we don't even know about that we didn't have access to. But
3: well, and we'll have to disagree on that. One.
2: We'll have to have you come back. But final question. We started by saying that Nationalist Jews and more conservative Jews and religious Jews didn't really like Henry Kissinger for Islamic tag. I get the sense today he's been rehabilitated among the pro Israel crowd or the more nationalistic crowd. Am I correct in that assessment?
3: Well, we'll see. Uh, You know, what I try to show in the book, and I did not, you know, I did not start out in this way, but what I show in the book on the basis of, of a deep examination of all of the archives, including the Israeli archives is that Kissinger, in many ways, did fundamental things to help Israel survive and thrive. And that's not known in part because he didn't want to talk about it, but but I've documented it in the book, and I think it's fair to, uh, to reassess uh, what he did for Israel because he made a great contribution. And I mean, by the way, mm-hmm. if you look at Yitzhak Rabin's biography, you'll see that he says that too.
2: Ambassador Martin Indyk, thank you for joining us. I recommend the book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. We've got to have you back to discuss some of the important issues. So I know we took many years before you got you on. We hope you come a regular with us.
3: It be my pleasure. Thanks very much. Enjoy. Thanks for listening.
1: For continuous Jewish programs, HawklineNetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or JewishPodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the Talk com.
0: Talkline Network Radio, America's longest running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.